So we're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 4, and we've been reading through the book of Galatians, which are written uh, by the Apostle Paul. It's one of the very first New Testament books written. It's not at the beginning of the New Testament, but it's one of the very first ones that were written chronologically. And uh, it's written to the church. It's called Galatians because it's written to the church in Galatia. There were four uh, cities that Paul had, uh, who was a very early church leader. A guy named Paul had planted churches in these four cities, and they are uh, now trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And they have no New Testament Bible, no, nothing but each other's uh, company and prayer and the Holy Spirit, and they are trying their best. And there's people that are coming in with competing influences saying, oh, you have to do this or you have to do that. And Paul is saying, no, you don't have to do that. You're uh, saved and you're set free. And so there's this competing influence that came in after Paul had started the churches and left that said you need to become a Jewish in order to become Christian because Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> professional pastoring with James. All right. Uh, because you need to become uh, Jewish because Jesus was Jewish. Now, when I coughed, this is what I remember. I got, I'm kind of excited about today's sermon, but we need to put it on hold for a second. And this isn't a, po- uh, a planned thing. After church today, uh, this is in your little uh, program. We're having an all church, like an all members meeting uh, after church. This is how I was supposed to lead off, but the video was so exciting. Uh, <laughs> um, the, we would sometimes do these things uh, during the church service, uh, but we really didn't want to spend part of the church service talking about like uh, budgets and accounting and that kind of stuff. Um, that's going to happen right after. And so we want to invite everyone to hang out afterwards. It's going to be very, very short. It won't be um, like long and drawn out. What tends to happen I'm, as a pastor, and I've gone to church, oh, I became a Christian around the age 10, so I've gone to church for a long time, and what tends to happen is if, if something is going really bad, then attendance is awesome at church meetings. And so in a way, I kind of hope nobody goes, because that means, oh, things are going pretty good, right? Uh, but I want to, or we could like invent some drama or something like that. And so if you have some like drama that you want to invent and you want to come to the church meeting, that would be great. And it, it increases the excitement. So um, I've seen churches like split literally I was there for a meeting when a church split and like went two different directions and I determined right there I will never do that <laughs> but uh, it is uh, so at our meeting we don't have any good drama to share unfortunately but uh, uh, we are going to buy a church helicopter and so that's a vote that's coming up so <laughs> if you want to vote on that you can get a ride in it uh, <laughs> that's a joke as well all right We've had a good year, and, uh, but we have some important things, I think, planned for 2018, and so we just kind of want to share those things and some of the directions we're going, some of the uh, weaknesses that we're seeing in our church and the way that we want to uh, improve on some of our strengths and move, move forward. So it won't be long. You won't miss your lunch because I want to eat as well. Uh, so we're going to put all the tables away. The kids are going to go in the back. We're going to give them devices, and I'm going to talk really fast at the front. So, all right? Back to the Bible, where we belong. Uh, So, a very, very, very long time ago, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. And outside of Jesus, Abraham is the most important person in the history of the world. Uh, Abraham is claimed to be the father of all three major religions in the world, would claim Abraham as a a prophet or a patriarch in their uh, faith system. And so there 
relationship between the, like, just the human race and the man Abraham is a significant one. Uh, outside of Jesus, he would be the person that is most known on earth. Uh, whether people know they know him or not, uh, they, are, uh, they come from Abraham, at least in their ideas or in their way of thinking. Now, God came to Abraham and made him a promise that he would have children, a great number of children, uh, children upon children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that his offspring would, would uh, be as great as the sand on the seashore, like just incredible numbers of people. But Abraham was an old guy. And so he uh, and his wife uh, decided to kind of help God out. And this was culturally appropriate then, not culturally appropriate today. Uh, this would get you in the Harvey Weinstein category today. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Abraham and Sarah had the idea that they would have their maidservant, uh, Hagar, uh, have a child, kind of like a surrogacy, but there's no science involved. Uh, and uh, uh, this is as bad as it sounds, and they would have a child, and that would be the way that they would fulfill the promise that God had made to them, which you can imagine complicates your family dynamic when you've got a husband, a wife, and a live-in maidservant who also has a child with the husband, and, there's, and it's the oldest child, and so there's some inheritance law that's going to happen there. And if you're the matriarch in this family, you probably aren't interested in uh, that child from that woman, which you thought was a good idea at one point, which I would say she probably didn't, since the Bible was written by men. Uh, I would probably say Sarah probably wasn't consulted enough in this situation. Uh, normally in my life, when I'm about to make a bad decision, I talk to my wife and I don't make the bad decision, right? So uh, I can't see how this happened with Sarah's wisdom, but we'll move on. <laughs> I'm not throwing Abraham under the bus, but that's where you'll find him in heaven. <laughs> they have uh, Abraham and Sarah, then have children as well, by, just by a miracle of God. Uh, and they begin to, like God uh, actually arrives and gives us very specific promise uh, that you will have a child by this time and this way, and they actually can't believe it because of their age, and they think that the, what they've done to shore up God's promise uh, is the way that God is going to fulfill his promise to them. And so their lives become very, very complicated because of uh, their lack of trust in God's faithfulness. When God makes a promise, and then we decide, and this is in the book of Genesis, when God makes a promise, and then we decide okay, God made this promise. I'm just going to kind of help God's promise along here. Like I'm going to kind of get God's promise going over here with this other way that is completely immoral, but hey, the ends justify the means. What we do is actually complicate our life and we kind of undercut God's promise. And it's not because we're helping God. It's really actually because we are dealing with a lack of trust in the faithfulness of God. Um, that story is what Paul draws on in his next point when he's writing this letter to the Galatian church. And so we're going to read this together. It'll be on the screen or in your app. And um, that story is the background and the context so that you understand what happens. And you can see the verse 21. If you have a Bible with subheadings, it's called Hagar and Sarah. Um, <clears throat> 
tell me, you who want to be under the law, the Old Testament law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of the divine promise. Uh, These things are to be taken figuratively. Other Bibles say allegorically. The woman represent two covenants or two promises. One covenant is from Mount Sinai, which was where the Ten Commandments were from. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem in Paul's day because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above, a heavenly Jerusalem, the Bible sometimes calls it the New Jerusalem, the he- but, the he- but the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, and this is a, from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, be glad, barren, barren women, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac are children of promise. And at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. And this is a quote from Sarah. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of, a, of the slave woman, but of the free woman. There's a lot of the word woman in there, and you'll notice with my accent, plural and singular woman sounds exactly the same. That's how I see the world. <laughs> this story uh, it takes this Old Testament story, which we would just take as a story or a historical story in the Bible, And you would think it was just true for what it's true for. Like it's true in its context. It is a story about something that happened. But Paul actually interprets the Bible in a way that we would never interpret the Bible today. Like we would not say this Old Testament story bears a universal like allegorical or a figurative truth where we pull it out of its context in order that it would mean something to favor our argument. In Paul's day, this was a common uh, rhetorical device. And actually, Paul's not the first one to use this story. Uh, The philosopher Philo used this story to a different end, but he would use Old Testament stories in order to explain what is happening in this current age according to what God's will and God's purpose is for his people. And so when Paul uses this old story and says, this is what happened, and the reason it happened is so that you can understand what's happening today. And there are two people in Paul's day that are competing to decide who is the true church, who are the true people of God. And on the one side, there's the people who are uh, intentionally putting themselves into what Paul calls slavery. Slavery to an Old Testament law. 
And on the other side, there's a group that says we're saved and we're set free from the Old Testament law. We live with the Spirit of God in us and we move forward. And you can see what, he uses a derogatory word, slave, and an encouraging word, free, to this, you can see what side of the argument Paul wants you to land on. And we don't have the same struggle in the church or in Christian lives today. Uh, in, especially in our area, there's not a lot of people having an argument over how we're to follow the Mosaic law, right? Some of you are dressed in materials today which break the Old Testament law. Uh, you just are. Uh, you've got haircuts which break the Old Testament law. My haircut breaks the New Testament law as well, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> why not go all the way? But there is this, <laughs> Hagar was this solution that Abraham and Sarah came up with in the solution revealed their lack of faithfulness and the ability of God to guide them and lead them. And in today's church, I think we have a temptation in our lives to set up rules to guide our Christianity or religion, or religious systems to guide our Christianity because we're nervous that we're not doing what God wants us to do. We're nervous that God won't uh, fill us with his spirit and that his spirit won't guide us and lead us in the ways that we're to go. So we set up systems and rules and guidelines in order to protect our own sense of comfort and our own sense of um, being right in relationship to God. What happens, though, when you set up these uh, boundaries, when you set up these walls around your faith system, it's the same thing with any wall. You've now determined who's on the inside and who's on the outside. And I think every wall has an inside and an outside. It's not just a division, it's a determination, and that determination is deciding who's higher and who's lower. You build a, a fence around your yard, not between you and your neighbor. And that's a general principle. Some of you have neighbors where it is definitely between, right? Like you're trying to pretend they're not there. But this solution that Abraham and Sarah came up with to have a child through Hagar, their slave woman or their maidservant, uh, that solution was painted to be a help to God. We're going to do this thing over here in order to help God work when really what's underneath it is a distrust in God, in his faithfulness, in his ability, in his wisdom. And so we build the same systems. And I think in contemporary Christianity, what we've really done is mastered the building of these systems. And, I, and I'm not mad. I think a lot of uh, my pastor friends go to pastor schools where they train you in this. I went to a pastor school in the deep south, like in the rural south, and I've learned rules that you wouldn't even believe were rules. Uh, and like we weren't allowed screen print. That's my favorite one. You could wear a shirt that said, I love Jesus, and you would get, at our school, it was called gratis, and you'd either have to pay $5, and there were some shirts I'd wear and I'd pay the $5 for it. Like, yeah, I'm doing this. Uh, but I also, I was in the youth ministry department, so like most of us were rebels anyways, and discipline wasn't high on our list. So 
uh, we were just kind of in our own, doing our own thing. But there's uh, rules that do this. I, and our school was considered um, contemporary. I had a friend that went to a more conservative school in, in Pensacola, Florida. And if there was an elevator and the elevator opened and you were going to get on, but there was a girl on the elevator and you were a guy, you would wait for the next elevator because good Lord knows what adultery would happen in an elevator ride, you know? And so you would just wait. I'm not riffing on Pensacola Christian College, but you can Google it. Uh, I'm not going to name them my name, but they're a Christian college in Pensacola. <laughs> uh, but you would, uh, you would ride on the school bus, and there would be guys on one side, girls on the other side, and, and uh, they would be divided. Like, so if they were training the pastors in this way, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, it's behavioral modification, not trusting and leading of the Holy Spirit. If we're training the leaders of the church in behavior modification, then the expectation is, so I'm not mad at the church, I'm mad at the training institutions that are training pastors, because it's a lot easier to teach your church behavior modification. So here's what the Bible says. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Everybody behave according to the modifications that we've put down, and now we'll be a church with less drama, and we'll move forward, and we'll gather other people who are looking for rules so that they feel comfortable. When I look at the example of Jesus... I see him walking into a situation where there is an obvious rule and he is obviously breaking it. He touched people who were ritually unclean. He healed people on the day that he should have been resting, on the Sabbath, when you're not supposed to do any work. And those are just the religious law. Then Jesus doesn't respect laws of general nature. There's a storm and Jesus doesn't like it. Stop. Storm stops. Jesus misses a boat ride but wants to hang out with his friends, so he walks across on the water, not respecting laws of nature. <laughs> and I know we want to, like, you can paint that like a miracle, but I think it's like one of the more rebellious things because Jesus walked up to them and they thought it was a ghost and he never said, uh, like, yeah, Jesus kind of leaned into that stuff. <laughs> Instead of saying, all right, I'll stop, he invites other people onto the water with him. <sighs> this says nothing of Jesus' first miracle. Do you know Jesus' first miracle? It's your favorite. Water to wine, right? He gives, like, what he turns water into wine and serves it to people that are already a little buzzed. Jesus has drunk friends, and he gives them the best tasting wine they've ever had in their lives. I don't think it's far from the truth to say if Jesus was a pastor, he wouldn't be for very long. <laughs> he would be run out of town or out of his denomination or whatever that was. Uh, there, Jesus tended to, instead of saying, here's some rules for us to be safe, he said, here's some rules, we're inside this, but I love those people that are right out there. Can I go over there with them? And he would just go over there. And not to try to get them to come in here. He would sit out here and say, hey, let's not sin anymore. People who have never defined themselves as being in the in group, people who have maybe never defined themselves as being well-behaved Christian people, Jesus sits with them and says, let's not sin anymore. They don't even know what that means, but they're willing to hang out and follow Jesus. The church today doesn't have the struggle of the Old Testament law and what do we do with it in the New Testament. I think the church today has the struggle with 
Can we honestly engage with the world around us and trust the Holy Spirit of God to do what God says he will do? Our world is becoming increasingly a stark difference between what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to just be a person in the world. We are swimming less and less in what we would call like a a Christian aquarium. The culture around us isn't holding Judeo-Christian values anymore. And so the concept of how we engage with that becomes more and more difficult. In the very, very early church, Paul talked about this in a different spot in his writings, uh, people would uh, want to go to the market and buy food. And you could buy meat, and it would be expensive, but it was a little bit cheaper if you bought the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And to sacrifice it to an idol, you would cut it up and you'd barbecue it, and the smell would be like appealing to their gods that they had made. And then they would take that meat off, and the priests would consume some, and that would be how they'd pay. And then they'd have extra, and they'd sell it. Uh, to make a little extra money for the local temple. And so you could buy the expensive meat that had not been sacrificed to idols, or you could buy the cheaper stuff that had been sacrificed to idols and then give your money to charity, which is the moral thing to do. And the early Christians had an argument over that. They said, no, it's not right. I can't touch that stuff that has been sacrificed to idols. And we're not sacrificing meat to idols, but maybe you have a lawn care provider at your house who worships the false god Pan. No, you don't. (laughs) But you have someone in your neighborhood who are in your economic circle who probably has a different view over the God of the universe and Jesus Christ than you do. You go to a restaurant and an atheist cooks your bacon. Are you allowed to eat it? Or do you have to go to the Christian restaurant and eat Christian bacon? Y'all don't get, there's no such thing as non-Christian bacon. Like it's all. Bacon is part of your salvation, all right? Y'all didn't catch the, like that was the whole point of that story. You're like, no, James, there is no non-Christian bacon. It is all saved. And when we get to heaven, it is all bacon, right? Read the Old Testament, read the New Testament. It's clear. When... When you begin to think about those things, a lot of us have in mind, this is exactly what you should do. This is exactly what you should do. Do this, and then the other ones say, do this. And the one side will say, no, it costs me more to do this thing over here, but I'm buying from a Christian resource, or not even a Christian, maybe just a well-resourced fair trade, something like that. I'm being responsible with my money. On the other side, you're saying, I'm buying the cheapest thing that I can possibly be made, but I'm taking my extra money and I'm giving it away to the vulnerable and the poor. In both of those systems, there's economic uh, inequalities that actually uh, contribute to the problem at the same time as you're solving the problem. And so if you try to say, this is the Christian thing to do when you're interacting with the world, What you've done is tried to set up a rule, and what I find Jesus doing is laughing at your rule and stepping just past it. And and Jesus is standing over there doing things and having a good time and changing people's lives, and the vast majority of the church is standing over inside the rules going, (laughs) Jesus, he's crazy, all right? But I'm over here, and I'm good, and we're going to make it to heaven, and we're going to stay safe, and we're not going to get into that stuff over there. 
I feel like the challenge of Jesus, like as if it wasn't hard enough for him the first time, the challenge of Jesus in today's uh, Western church is doing ministry plus convincing the Christians to go with him. Not all. I'm not trying to be condemning. But I hope you can see and feel a bit of the tension. See, the competition... um, we're going to talk about this at my business meeting, at the congregational business meeting in a second. Uh, do you know the company Netflix, right? You subscribe to Netflix and you spend all of your time Netflixing. Um, the CEO of Netflix, they were interviewing him because there's a lot of other streaming services that are coming out and they're like, which one is your primary competition? And he identified a different primary competition and that is sleep. If Netflix can eliminate sleep, their company grows. Isn't that true? They're not worried about this or that or whatever. Uh, If they can eliminate sleep, we will grow. It's a completely different way of looking at things. I think a lot of Christians, if they ran Netflix, would think, how do we take down the other or how do we beat the other thing? This is what I see. Churches looking at other churches' marketing solutions and not vomiting from a Christian organization having a marketing solution, but instead trying to copy it and do things better and the churches are all competing with each other. When there is vast swaths of people that are sleeping, that if we could wake them up spiritually, then the gospel moves forward. The primary competition for Netflix is not another streaming service. The primary competition for a a Christian is not another Christian. We don't need to try to figure out who's in and who's out and where's our boundaries and how do we act and how do we not act. As much as we need to find out where Jesus is and manage to walk and manage to trust. And when Jesus is walking outside of the boat and it makes no sense at all, we get out of the boat. And we walk towards where Jesus is walking. In a lot of the Bible and a lot of the world today, it talks about the experience of Uh, following Jesus, but being uh, suffering for it, being persecuted for it. And a lot of times, we talk about in the Western world, we don't experience that. And I don't think that's necessarily a freedom of religion issue as much as it is a lack of trust in the fundamental truths of the gospel issue. As soon as you bring up Jesus, it's offensive immediately. If you actually say the things that Jesus said in our world today, it's offensive, it's countercultural immediately. And we try to back up and kind of polish Jesus and make him more acceptable. And what we're really trying to do is avoid the awkwardness or the uncomfortable or the um, opposition even to what we believe to be the gospel truth. We're actively trying to avoid that awkwardness. So the biggest competition for us isn't sin as much as it is comfort, which that's just like the bacon thing. A lot of times comfort and sin are the same thing. So you end up with a bunch of people in the boat and Jesus outside of the boat and one guy gets out. This is one of my favorite stories, so we're going to kind of finish with this, but The guy that gets out, his name is Peter. Uh, Peter gets out of the boat, and this is a true story. Jesus, he says, Jesus, if that's really you, tell me to come over there, because they still think it's a ghost, which 
the very first leaders of the church thought ghosts walked around on lakes. If that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what will. He says, if that's really you, call me out there. And Jesus says, all right, come on. Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water. Oh, snap. Right? Peter is the only human, non-God person in history to just get out of a boat and walk over there. Right? Short of being towed and letting go. and Like, it didn't end with whiplash. (laughs) Peter just gets out and starts walking. Now, what Peter does is notice that he's walking on the water and he does what you would do. <laughs> right? Like all of a sudden he looks around him and like, this is awesome. Like tell me that's not the coolest feeling in the world. You're walking and underneath your feet you feel like water moving and there's waves and stuff and I don't know how it worked but he's walking and he starts looking around him and as soon as he takes his eye off Jesus, there's a moralistic interpretation to this, but he takes his eye off Jesus, he begins to sink, he reaches out and Jesus grabs him and makes fun of him a little bit. <laughs> There's 11 other guys in the boat. 11 other guys in the boat. Do you know what every single one of them did? Jack nothing. Nothing. Peter gets back in the boat, soaking wet, freezing, embarrassed. Jesus gets in the boat, and the 11 other guys there just sit there and shame him with their eyes. Look at you, you soaking wet idiot. We stayed inside the boat. We didn't do things like what Jesus does and just walk around on the water like an idiot. Because I bet you know people who've tried to do ministry outside of the rules and failed. They're on the news all the time. People who've tried to follow God and they've blown it and they've sunk. It happens all the time. And we use those people as an excuse to sit in our safe space and not move out there. We would rather be a slave to this boat. We would rather be set inside the boundaries than to be actually saved and actually set free and actually able to do things miraculously. We would rather be dry and get to shore safely than to be the guy who sunk. And I think what Jesus calls us to is to walk past those boundaries and see what happens. It's, it wasn't a surprise to Jesus, right? And even Peter, who was a surprising guy, it wasn't a surprise to Jesus that he walked out there. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus that he sunk. And Jesus grabs him so that he doesn't sink too far and throws him back in the boat. Peter spends the rest of his life, I think, you can read this, and you can study Peter's life, I think he spends the rest of his life trying to get out of the boat. Because for that moment when he was out there, it was just the most killer awesome experience ever. Like maybe you've tried to follow Jesus into something, you feel like God's saying this, like God's telling you, talk to this person at your work about me, invite this person to see what church is all about or have a spiritual conversation or tell them that you'll pray for them. And you've tried that and it's gone really negatively. And you think, I am not getting out of that boat no more. I am willing to live inside the boundaries and not step out there. When you get to heaven, the stories that you tell, will, like there's no story about the 11 guys that stayed on the boat. 
you don't even know their name. And it's true. You might know like five disciples, but the rest you don't know. Bartholomew, you're like, is that even a guy? He's a disciple, but he's a loser that stays in the boat. He's going to be in heaven, and I just called him a loser, but whatever. <laughs> you have the opportunity to get out, and listen, <laughs> there's no promise of success. Like when you're saved and set free, it doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. Like it is wild and crazy Jesus time. There's, I think, actually increased responsibility, increased expectation of faithfulness, and an increased expectation of fruitfulness for those who live free than those who live under the uh, slavery or inside the boat or inside the boundary of Old Testament law or safe and cultural and comfortable Christianity. To move outside of that, I promise you will fail. I promise you will be scorned. I promise that, and you will be scorned by Christians. And I promise when you try to get back in the boat, there's going to be people that are upset that you're getting water all over. And I promise they'll spend the rest of your life wanting to get back out. And the challenge, I don't think, is to not live safely but live dangerously. I think it's to live dangerously or live freely and see what happens. Whether it goes well or goes bad, you're going to end up having to come back when it goes bad and then going a second time and going a tenth time, and going a hundredth time. There's people who you will tell about Jesus at your work, you'll have a spiritual conversation with them for 10 or 20 or 30, if you have a job that long, years. Just over and over and over. And the time that you share with them, maybe the 30th or 40th time of who Jesus is, that he loves them, that they can find meaning and relationship with God in uh, the context of a church or in the context of Jesus and a relationship with Jesus, that time won't happen because you managed to live a safe life. It happened because you managed to keep leaving the boundaries, keep going outside of the wall, keep ignoring that safe comfort structure that our culture tries to get you to live in, and you live for Jesus in wide open, free spaces. Let me pray for you in that way, all right? Let's stand and pray. Jesus, our God, I want to pray that you would call us out. And I want to pray in, in a, such a way that you would call us out with an irresistible calling. Like for those of us here who feel like God is calling us to do something brave or to move into a new level of passion in our following of you. I want to pray that you would call us out in a way that our excuses look more and more ridiculous and that we walk out onto the waves. Jesus, I want to ask that you cause our hearts to follow you beyond the boundaries that our trust has set up. Each of us can probably identify, God, I trust you all the way to here. I trust you all the way to my finances. Or I trust you all the way to my family or my spouse or my career. But just beyond the boundary, I'm going to handle. Like Abraham and Sarah trusted you all the way up to having a child. And then they went in a different direction and managed to have a child on their own. Setting up two competing nations that will 
continue throughout all history. God, call us to you because we believe that you are out there, that you are out doing ministry, reaching people, that you are out making the name of God famous in places that have never heard of it. Those of us in this room who feel that passion and feel that call today, God, call us to a renewed commitment to you to follow you into places that are unexpected, that uh, may not be safe or within the boundary, but we'll know that you are there and that when we fail and we sink, you will grab us and pull us back up. And though we might be embarrassed to be soaking wet for the rest of our lives, renew that desire to get outside of our boundary, to get over the fence, to get out of the boat. Call us now, God, beyond our trust, beyond ourselves, into the waves and onto the water as only our God can. Amen. <laughs>